I owe it in large part to my mother that from a young age I knew the scriptures. I knew a lot about God. I, I memorized Bible verses. She took us to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and then days in between. All the time. Uh, we were constantly gathering together with God's people. And because of that, uh, I learned a lot about God even before I came to faith in Christ. One, uh, one memory that I have was being in children's choir class. I was in the children's choir. I was in youth choir. And thinking back to my best friend's mother teaching us some of these little children's songs. It's so sweet to think about those things. Uh, one song that I have in my mind, I don't know if we actually learned it back then or if I just heard about it later, but it's kind of a, a children's Bible song and kind of like a nursery type song uh, feel to it. Maybe you've heard it. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a father up above who's looking down in love. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. And it goes through, be careful what you hear. Be careful what you do. Be careful what you say. Uh, I want to add this morning an attempt at making another verse to that song. Be careful, little hearts, what you worship. Be careful, little hearts, what you worship. For the things you most adore, you become like more and more. Be careful, little hearts, what you worship. N.T. Wright has said, you become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. Hopefully you can see the huge implications this has for our worship. As we come to this passage of Scripture today, you might not recognize it, but it is all about worship. Often what I do at the beginning of sermons, I want to give some introduction to show you why this is important for your life. You should already believe that it's important. Hearing the Word of God is important. That is God's very word to us, but I want to, to show you why this is important. So when it comes to worship, here's why it's so important. It changes who you are, the things that you worship. If you set your heart on the things of this world, it will give you no life. It's said in Psalm 115, of those who make idols that cannot speak, cannot hear, cannot see, cannot accomplish anything. Those who make them become like them, and so do those who trust in them. If you attach your heart to things in worship, if you attach your heart in worship to things of this world, they will give you no life, only death. But if you attach your heart in worship to Jesus Christ, He is the one who will give you life. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus is demonstrating His authority over the worship of God for the people of God. He is starting a new age of worship for the people of God. So last week we saw Jesus is beginning this new age of the Messiah in which there is joy, in which there is abundance, in which there is blessing. He is the one in whom all the nations are blessed. He came as the one in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets. They were speaking of Him. This new age has dawned 
with Jesus Christ coming. And with this new age, he brings a new age of worship. He brings a new sort of worship. We already looked uh, a couple of weeks ago at Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Remember what it says there. Turn back in your Bibles to Malachi 3. He's speaking of the one who would come and prepare the way. Speaking of John, right? The author of John spoke of John the baptizer in this way. Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Isn't that exactly what we have here? And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Some scholars have made a big deal about John putting Jesus' cleansing the temple here at the beginning of the book of John. Because in the other gospel witnesses, we have an instance at the end of those books of Jesus going to the temple and cleaning out. So they've said, well, there was only one, but John just puts it here at the beginning for his own purposes. Well, I think the easiest answer to that is there were two. Jesus entered the temple and cleansed the temple twice. But John does report it where the other authors don't report it for a particular purpose. John is the one preparing the way, and here is the Lord coming to his temple to clean it out, to purify it. He wants to to show that Jesus has authority over the worship of God's people. Worship is important for us to get right today. John also puts it here, I think, to establish this conflict that happens between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. His disciples have already begun believing in him, placing their faith in him. And here we see Jews scoffing at Jesus. And we also see inadequate belief at the end of this passage. What I want us to consider this morning are, is how Jesus starts this new age of worship. How Jesus stands as the authority over the worship of God. So we'll walk through the, just the passage as it's laid out before us. But then I want us to consider these particular points about worship. What is it about Jesus that changes the worship of God's people? First, I want you to consider from these first several verses that Jesus is zealous for the purity of the worship of God. Jesus is zealous for the purity of the worship of God. Notice we see uh, John reports for us what Jesus saw, what he found, what he did, and what he said. When he got to the temple, what he found were those selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. He found a marketplace. It didn't look like a place of worship. It looked like a street-side market. Vendors, money changers. Notice also what Jesus did. Whenever someone says, what would Jesus do? You can remind them it's not outside the realm of possibility that he would make a whip and, and drive people out of the temple. 
turn over tables and pour out the, the money of the money changers. This is just such an amazing scene, isn't it? Maybe we don't give it its due to consider what it is that Jesus was doing here in this instance. I thought about bringing a big bowl of change and dumping it out right here on the floor to give us a sense of what Jesus would have been doing. People would have presumably been looking at him. How odd, how strange that he would come and do these things, flipping over tables. He makes a whip. He takes the time to fashion this whip and to drive out not just the animals, but those who are selling these animals. We might be left wondering why he would do such a thing, except for his words and the author's words tell us what he's doing. And so he he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. That word there speaks of a marketplace being an emporium, a place of the selling and the exchanging of goods. It also uh, points back to a couple of places in the Old Testament. Consider Zechariah 14.21, where it is said, Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a trader, one who trades, a merchant in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Or consider also Isaiah 56, 6 through 7. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And this takes on even greater significance in our passage as you consider the word that is used of the temple in this first part refers, it seems he's referring primarily to the outer court of the Gentiles. So what had happened, the Jews had taken this outer court where where the Gentiles, the only place they were free to come and worship, they had turned it into a marketplace. They had no concern for the worship of God or the worship of the Gentiles in the house of God. And then we have a comment from the author here in our passage. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And I take this in the sense that it also says in verse 22 that they remember this after Jesus' resurrection. So they don't remember this at the the very moment. Rather, it's not until after Jesus' death and resurrection things start becoming clear and the disciples understand what he's talking about. And they made this connection as they thought about Jesus cleansing the temple. They thought about this. John thought about this and remembered what it said in Psalm 69.9. Zeal for your house will consume me we often leave off uh, considering the second part of that verse for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me we could consider this phrase zeal for your house will consume me in a couple of different ways the john uh, his disciples and john turns it into a future tense zeal will consume me 
for your house. Jesus had such a passion for the purity of the worship of God. My house referring to the central location where God was worshipped, where people came to make sacrifices to God, to worship Him. The temple being the very center of the worship of God. Zeal for the worship of God. The pure worship of God consumed Him. Not only did it consume Him like we think of uh, being zealous for something, It literally consumed him, devoured him. This is what led to his death. It led to his arrest and his death. His zeal for the purity of the worship of God is what caused the Jews to crucify him. So Jesus here asserts his own authority. This is probably the big point of the passage. Jesus asserting his authority. I am the one who says how worship takes place in my Father's house. I am the Son of God. He is my Father. This is His house. I have authority to set the worship of God. But consider also His zealousy, His zealousness, His zeal for the purity of God. Two particular ways we could consider here, not as opposed to it being a marketplace, as it opposed to being a, a house of trade, and then also as being a place of worship for all peoples. Jesus has a great zealous zeal for the purity of the worship of God. How many of you stayed up Friday night watching the World Series baseball game? No, you didn't, son. (laughs) We went to sleep. I couldn't handle it. I went to sleep in the ninth inning. So Los Angeles Dodgers are playing the, the Boston Red Sox. We went to sleep in the ninth inning. It was tied up. And when I woke up the next morning, I was glad I didn't say up. Did you see how long this game went? Some seven hours, 18 innings. And one thing that fascinated me when I watched the replay of the game-winning home run, the walk-off home run by Max Muncy, there were a lot of people still in the crowd. Like, what are y'all doing at 3.30 in the morning? I guess if you're buying a World Series ticket, you're going to stick it out. Stay for the whole game. But they were fanatics. They, they were there for the whole game. They were in it until the very end, even if it had lasted 20-some innings. There were tons of people there. And I suppose seeing Jesus, people would have called him a fanatic. He was fanatical about worship taking place in the right way in his Father's house. And I think we ought to consider a, a few things related to, to that for our own purposes. Considering what sorts of things are we, could, could it be said of you, you are zealous for? You have a great zeal for sports. Maybe you're a big sports fan. Maybe you like sports for your children. Maybe you, you like cars. Maybe you, you like business and deals. What is it that you are zealous for in your life? And you can measure this in a number of ways. What are, you, what are you willing to, to fork over the cash for? What are you willing to spend time on? What are you willing to drive 200 miles for? What is it that you are zealous for? What consumes you with desire you yearn after? Zeal refers to having a, a, an incredible commitment or dedication to something. As we consider our own zeal 
to be honest, we, we should be ashamed about the things that we are zealous for in this life. The American dream. Money, power, ambition. Things of this nature. But then also you can consider your own zeal for the worship of God. How does it compare with the other things in your life? And what would it look like for you to have a real zeal for the worship of God? We could think about this corporately as a church. What does it mean for us that we want to be zealous about the worship of God? Well, it could mean that we don't want to be a house of entertainment, a house of the market. We don't want to be a house of frivolity in worship. We want to come before him with reverence and awe. We want it to be all about him. We don't want to be a house of personal preference when it comes to our worship. Or what, are, what would it mean for you individually to have a great zeal for worship? And it's completely true that you worship individually by yourself. You worship as a family. We're worshiping every day of our lives. But there's a particular sense in which when we gather together as the people of God, we are worshiping together as the temple of God, offering up praises to God. What would it mean for you to be zealous about the worship of God and the gathering of God's people? It would mean some very practical things about being here, making a dedication, making a commitment. I am going to be here for the worship of God because it is precious. I want to be zealous for the worship of God together with God's people. It could mean making sure you get enough sleep the night before and not staying up till 3 a.m. watching a baseball game. It could, make sure, it, it could mean preparing your heart before you gather together for worship. Taking the time to, to walk through the, the worship preparation and the scripture, familiarizing yourself with what is going to be proclaimed. Maybe familiarizing yourself with some of the songs that are going to be sung, preparing your, your heart for worship because you know how important this is and you want to be dedicated to the worship of God, to the pure worship of God. How zealous are you for the worship of God? Is it just something you, you show up for and you hope maybe you, you gain from it, knowing that God does work through the ordinary means of His grace? Or do you really prepare for it like you would with something else you're zealous for. Well, Jesus is zealous for the purity of the worship of God. This is why he cleans out the temple. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. But he's also zealous for the purity of the worship of God in the object, when it comes to the object of our worship. And this is our second point, that Jesus himself is the center of worship for the people of God. Jesus is the center of worship for the people of God. The Jews, amazed at what he has done and amazed at what he has said, ask him then, and this is probably the, the leaders of the, the temple, the, the temple authorities, what sign do you show us for doing these things? How can you suggest that you have the authority to do this? I mean, imagine being in a public, some sort of public building and somebody comes in and starts turning over tables, almost turned over the pulpit right there. Perfect illustration. Somebody would want to know who gives you the right to do these things 
You, you can't just come in here doing that. And so the temple authorities want to know, what gives you the right to do these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? Perform some sign so that we know you are from God, despite the countless signs he's, he's already accomplished. We see that later. He did many other signs during this Passover feast. And yet, they don't really want a sign. They, they want to condemn him. They want to stay in charge. They want to remain the ones who are in authority over the temple. And so look at Jesus' answer to them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now on the surface of things, consider what he's saying. See this temple that I just made a mess of? Destroy it, and I will raise it up in three days. He, he called their bluff. Of course, they're not going to destroy it, but that would be an amazing sign, wouldn't it? If they took the bulldozers to it and knocked it completely down, Jesus says, I will raise it back up. But of course, we, we, we get the benefit of the author again. Well, first the Jews respond and say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. There's some thought, does this mean it's taken this long to build the temple or it was built 46 years ago? I don't think that matters a whole lot because we still get the sense of it. Their shock, their amazement that he would supposedly raise this building up in three days. Not going to happen. But the author informs us he was speaking about the temple of his body. They didn't get the benefit of John telling them, oh, here's what Jesus is talking about. He was speaking of the temple of his body. I love how one commentator puts it, how, how one commentator says this, this saying of Jesus, destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it up. Do you know what that's like? I remember a scene from a movie that I've never seen. It came out in 1983, I believe, called Sudden Impact. Clint Eastwood was in it. And there came a, a, a climactic point where... Clint Eastwood's calling their bluff, and he says, go ahead, make my day. Do it and see what happens. This is the sense of what Jesus is saying to the Jews. Go ahead, destroy this temple. See what happens. He's defiant because he is the authority over the temple and the worship of God. Go ahead and destroy this temple. And I will raise it up in three days. He was speaking about the temple of his body. And so what we should see here as we think about Jesus being the center of the worship for the people of God is that Jesus replaces the temple as the central place, as the central uh, opportunity to worship God the Father. Jesus replaces the temple. All right? Think about Throughout the Old Testament, how important the tabernacle was, how important the temple was for the people of God in their, their worship. For the Jews at this time, this is the central place of worship. This is where we come to meet God. We make sacrifices to Him. He receives our worship. Everything around associated with spiritual life and the worship of God took place in the temple. And Jesus says, I am the temple. Or rather, John tells us he was talking about himself. He's the temple. He is the central place of worship for the people of God, completely re replacing those Old Testament types and shadows. My 
grandparents used to live right near North Hills Mall. You familiar with North, North Hills Mall? Well, it hasn't always been that way. <laughs> My pawpaw used to take his shopping grocery cart and push it up the road to the A&P store. Or actually, I think it was a Winn-Dixie. And he'd go shopping there and he'd push it all the way home. What would it be like if he were here today and he were to take his shopping cart up to the, the Winn-Dixie to get his groceries? He wouldn't find a Winn-Dixie. I mean, it's, they haven't just kind of reshaped the way things look there. They haven't just put on a facade to make it look different. They have completely replaced the old with what is new. They have completely gotten rid of everything that I used to think of as North Hills, and it is completely different. Now, those buildings will be torn down again at some point, I'm sure. It will be replaced again. What's cool now won't be cool for much longer, and they'll have to replace it and and make it new and shiny so everybody comes and enjoys that. But when Jesus replaces the temple of God, this is now the permanent place. He is the permanent central location for the people of God to worship Him in purity and in truth. He will never be replaced again. He is the center of our worship. So we ought to consider this as well for our own worship. What is the center of your worship? Is it more like the, the Old Testament types and shadows? Where you, you offer up your own sacrifices to the Lord? Where you try to approach God in ways other than Christ? What is at the center of your worship? Now there are obvious idols and then there are subtle idols. Obvious idols would be things that you worship throughout your week. Right? You worship, we've already talked some about it, you worship money or you worship your own personal pleasure or you worship even good things like your family or, or work. You worship these things. You give them uh, an inappropriate amount of love and adoration. What is central to your worship? Or people worship other gods. So an amazing survey came out just a, a week or two ago from Ligonier Ministries in conjunction I believe, with Lifeway. They call it the State of Theology Survey. Listen to this statement and then listen to those who agreed to it. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 51% agreed with that. And 42 disagreed with that. But the kicker here is that's so-called evangelicals. 51% of so-called evangelicals agree that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They're not evangelicals. (laughs) Evangelical comes from evangel, which refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we might could nuance it. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, as long as they worship God the Father through Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man. I don't think they would appreciate that very much. But the point is, Jesus is the center of our worship. He must be the center of our worship. And those are the obvious idols of our hearts. But consider 
the, the subtle idols of your own heart. When you gather together for worship, when we gather together for worship, is it Christ whom we are worshiping? One way to test this, consider your favorite thing, your favorite aspect of worship when you come to the church. Maybe you really appreciate those who come and pray and that just it moves your soul to hear a particular person pray or about a particular topic or it really moves your heart the way Landon leads us to sing and express our praises to God. Or maybe you're a little odd and you just you love to come and hear my preaching. And it's, you, like, you like my personality and, and you're encouraged each Sunday when you, you come and hear the word proclaimed. Well, what is it, what aspect is it that you just love coming to worship? And what if Jesus took that away? What if Jesus took away a personal preference of yours in worship? Would you still be satisfied with the worship of God? We, we've been having some trouble with our pro presenter the last few weeks. So you noticed on the, the screen, the wall here, just very plain fonts, right? Have you noticed that? And I want that, I want this to be true of Christ Church Rollsville. We have nothing, we don't even have cool font, fonts to offer you. All we have to offer you is Jesus Christ and Him crucified for sinners. Jesus must be the center of our worship. It won't do to attach your heart to worship to any other thing. So what then, brothers and sisters, is at the center of your worship? It will take some meditation. It will take some introspection for you to weed out these roots because they are there. Right? We, are, we are prone to idolatry. This was a perennial temptation for the people of God in the Old Testament. And it's a perennial temptation temptation of those of us who live in a culture saturated with consumerism and affluence and money idols are constantly pulling at us drawing us to themselves like sirens trying to draw us away from the worship of the one true god through jesus christ jesus must be at the center of the worship of the people of god But Jesus also makes clear, and it's made clear in this passage by the author, that it's focused in even more particularly on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was speaking about this temple, the temple of his body, which would be destroyed and then raised, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus not only replaces the temple as the central location of the worship of God, but he also replaces the sacrificial offerings in the temple of God. Jesus is the sacrificial offering for the people of God in the appropriate worship of God. Really, we could say this is how he purifies our worship. All of our weak-hearted worship, all of our worship which lacks a certain zeal and a certain purity, Jesus cleanses it by his own sacrifice. He purifies his worship. 
This is a particular Jesus that we worship. It is one who is destroyed, one who is killed, one who dies and then is raised from the dead. The sacrifices in the Old Testament temple were insufficient. They were incomplete. They couldn't accomplish what it was that they were supposed to accomplish. They couldn't actually forgive sins. They, they rather pointed forward to the one who would forgive sins, the one who could forgive sin, the perfect, as John calls him, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, he's already pointed to Jesus as this sacrifice who would save us from our sins. But unlike any other sacrifice in the Old Testament, unlike any other sacrifice throughout history, this one got back up from the dead. This one resurrected from the dead. He offered his very life as a sacrifice for your impure worship. For your lack of zeal for the worship of God. He died that your sins might be forgiven. And he rose from the dead in victory, pouring out his spirit on his people. And he is now making us this holy temple unto the Lord. So we should consider with this last point then. On whom or on what is your dependence as you come to the Lord in worship? Why is it that God will receive you? Why is it that God will accept you when you come to Him? One of the old evangelistic methods had this question uh, about when you die... One day, we're all going to die, right? When you die and you go to heaven and you stand before God, and He asks you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What will you say? And in relating this to others, I've often said, if your sentence begins with, because I, then you have a big problem. Because I went to church regularly from the time I was a five-year-old kid. This is why you should let me in your kingdom. I came to church every time the doors were open. Or because I tried to, to be a good person. I tried to love others and show kindness to them. I tried to do good works. If anybody was ever in need, I helped them. Here, here's why you should let me in your kingdom. Because I've tried really hard to show love and kindness to others. Or because I was really sorry for my sin. I recognized I I wasn't a perfect person. You should let me into your kingdom because I'm really sorry for all the, the sins that I've committed. If that's the answer, God will turn that person away at the door of heaven to enter eternal damnation. The only answer that we'll do in that situation is if you say, because Jesus. Because Jesus lived the perfect life of purity and zeal for the worship of God. Because Jesus took the punishment which I deserve. Because Jesus died in my place. Because Jesus laid down his life so that I wouldn't have to lay down my life because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for me. This is why you should let me in your kingdom. Not because of anything I've done. Not because of who I am. 
but all because of Jesus and what he has done for me. Jesus is the only acceptable sacrificial offering for the people of God. And then why, brothers and sisters, might you turn back to your own good works or your own penitence or your own sorrow when you have the perfect sacrifice already? Why would you turn back to the types and shadows of the Old Testament when here you have the living temple, the one who was destroyed and rose again from the dead, the one who died for your sins, for all of your sins, past, present, and future? Why would you go back to anything that is incomplete and insufficient when in Christ you have everything that you need? This happens in a variety of ways as we think that we'll be accepted for our good works, our good deeds, our good intentions. Most of the unbelievers you speak to think they have access to God because of their their good hearts. When in, in reality, each one of us are in desperate need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, what is the center of your worship? Where does your dependence lie? Where is your acceptance with God? What are you worshiping and who are you becoming like? Most of you probably know the story by C.S. Lewis called The the Voyage, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In that story, a little boy named Eustace finds himself in a strange land. He finds himself in the middle of the ocean in what is called Narnia, this magical place. And he doesn't like it one bit. He is seasick from being in the ocean. He has nothing good to eat. And this little lifelike mouse, which speaks, keeps harassing him. You remember the story? And Eustace is not happy about anything. He just wants to go home. He wants to be out of this foreign land. He wants to go home and be at peace. Until he finds himself on an island in this valley where he sees an ocean of gold treasure. He sees coins and golden helmets and golden swords, all kinds of riches you could not possibly fathom. What would you do if you found yourself in such a situation? He wants to gather it all up. He wants to take it all with him. And in his yearning after these things, in his adoration of this wealth and this gold, he becomes transformed. He turns into a dragon, a greedy dragon. What you worship is what you become. What have you worshipped this week, brothers and sisters? The pleasures of your own heart? Money and power? Your own preferences? What is it that you have worshipped this week that has transformed you in some way into its likeness? Let us worship Jesus Christ. That God, by the power of of His Holy Spirit, might conform us, transform us to the image of the one we love the most. Let's pray now and ask God to to create this in our hearts, to, to weld us up in our hearts that we would desire Christ above all.